This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Kate McCann. Starting with an opinion piece by Jeff Ahanen. Rich Lopez and I come from different worlds. I'm white, he's Hispanic. I live in downtown Littleton and he lives off of Federal. I have a golden doodle and four young daughters. He has a pit bull named Chulo, Spanish for handsome, and adult kids living in Pueblo. I have an office job and he paints cars for an auto body repair shop in Sheridan. Yet Rich and I struck up an unlikely friendship out of mutual appreciation for each other's work. We met one day after a church service and started to discuss our jobs. He scrolled through images on his Android phone of tattoos he had penned, his true passion, and I asked Rick if Rich would consider teaching my daughter, then ten years old, how to draw. He arrived the next week with two gifts in hand, a drawing book that taught principles of light and shading, and a new set of charcoal pencils. My daughter smiled and looked at me as if to ask, Are those for me? Rich is both talented and generous. But this Labor Day, millions of laborers like Rich felt underappreciated. And how to improve the lot of our society's laborers is fiercely debated. We live in an incredibly tight labor market. Not only are people quitting at rapid rates, but the debate rages whether it's due to low wages or federal unemployment benefits, which expired this past Labor Day 2021. And many of these debates overlook the macro trends that are making it nearly impossible to hire people back after the pandemic. An aging workforce, the lack of comprehensive immigration reform, and the supply of lower-wage workers that such reform would help address, declining birth rates, men in the last 50 years simply dropping out of the labor force, and increased stress laborers feel in affording the basics of life like housing, education, and health care all contribute to the labor squeeze. In light of such widespread systemic issues, however, it's easy to forget that we're not powerless. Debates notwithstanding, there's something that each of us can do to appreciate our city's laborers and live out the ideal to love our neighbors as ourselves. Recognize dignity. When I interviewed Rich, I asked him what he wanted the city to know about his work. He said, I want people to see what we're contributing here. If you get in a car accident, you're going to need somebody to repair your car. That has value. For the vast majority of Denver's laborers, they don't first want more pay, better hours, or a promotion from their professional counterparts. They want our respect. Millions of men and women in jobs ranging from retail to janitorial services to construction to home health care first want to be seen and valued by those with more wealth and more prestigious jobs. The great divide in our society is the dignity deficit, one that we can close. Recognizing the dignity of a laborer at a hotel lobby or in an airport restaurant can be as simple as looking them in the eye and genuinely saying, thank you for your work. Listen and learn. We need to be curious about how people work, why they work, the pain they experience, the meaning they find in their labors, and the small triumphs of their daily lives. 
The habit of listening well is central to the act of love. Yet we also need to learn. Part of my own journey has been trying to understand the field of workforce development, a civic sector dedicated to providing opportunity and skill development to the country's workers. Business owners need to get educated on the menu of ways they can provide support and opportunity to their frontline employees. Local leaders like Liddy Romero at Work Life Partnership or business leaders like Carla Nugent at Wyfield Group Electrical Contracting are well worth listening to as we consider even small interventions that allow workers to thrive. Give away power. When I started, learn, started to learn about myriad ways businesses are working to improve life for workers, from on-site childcare to employee stock ownership programs, I called up Stephen Dawson, a workforce development expert, and said, This is all overwhelming. Where do we start? He said something I won't soon forget. You shouldn't decide. They should. What do they dream of? What are their needs? What is important to the frontline workers in your company, in your church, in your organization? Ask them. Dawson said the process of involving them is more important than the intervention itself. Why? Lower income workers are used to being told where to go, what to do, when to arrive, and when to go home. When managers give away some of their power to their teams, they not only provide better benefits, they give their co-workers a sense of what's possible. They offer space for them to dream of a better life and a pathway to get there. To give away power is to invite our vulnerable fellow citizens to the decision table. It's also a simple way we can love our city's laborers. Annexed by emergency, two and a half decades of discussion and negotiation over the CU South property ends in a council vote to annex by emergency, but the saga may not be over. An article by Will Brenza. The Boulder City Council voted 6-2 to two on September 21st to annex one of the most controversial properties in Boulder, CU South. It was the culmination of decades of discussion, review, negotiations, and debate. And while the emergency annexation passed by near-unanimous council vote, it will undoubtedly be challenged by referendum. A week prior to the vote on Tuesday, September 14th, Protesters had flocked to the City of Boulder Municipal Building. City Council was preparing to hold its second reading of the CU South Annexation Agreement, followed by a public comment period on the long contentious issue. The group of anti-annexation protesters outside was there to voice opposition to the agreement. The impending City Council vote on September 21st was an attempt to subvert their democratic right to vote on the matter, they asserted. After decades of deliberation and negotiation with CU, the city was ready to move forward with its annexation agreement, with or without the people. The council was going to approve Ordinance 8483 to annex CU South by emergency power. City staff had recommended the emergency vote in order to ensure that floodplain and fun flood work and funding for it continued to flow, despite the referendum promised by opponents. 
The only reason the city council is in this great big rush is because they want it to pass before the election. They're afraid of us. Marquis Lecomte, co-chair of Save South Boulder, said to the crowd circling before the municipal building on September 14th, If our ballot initiative passes, then there will have to be a citizen's vote on annexation. And if that passes, they have to go back to the drawing board. Peter Mayer, co-chair of Plan Boulder, spoke to the small crowd next. We need to tell our city council to respect democracy, Mayer sounded, to respect our democratic traditions that have served the people of Boulder so well. They need to pause this annexation and let the people of Boulder have a vote. And if the council were to move forward without said vote by the people, Mayor promised they'd be back with a referendum to overturn the decision. The city council meeting that followed would go on for nearly five and a half hours. In attendance were Phil Kleiser, senior planner at the city of Boulder, Joe Tadushi, the city's director of public works, Sandra Lanes, the interim city attorney, Derek Silva, the assistant vice chancellor for business strategy at CU, and Abby Benson, the deputy chief operating officer at CU. Boulder's Mayor Sam Weaver, along with other eight members of city council, read through and discussed the annexation agreement point by point, answering questions and updating everyone as to the latest changes made within the month. Public comment period started two and a half hours in. More than a hundred speakers were signed up when it at last began. The vast majority desperately and emotionally implored the council to approve the annexation of CU by emergency powers. Many of the speakers were on the verge of tears as they recalled the catastrophic flood in 2013 and begged for immediate action. While I'm sure of the support of some council members, I get a sense of why hurry from others. Jim Johnson, CEO of Fraser Retirement Community, which was devastated by the flood, said, I helped shepherd our Fraser residents to safety the night of September 11, 2013. He told how emergency services were unavailable, how he and others had to evacuate the nursing home over the course of two days of nonstop rain on their own. Eventually, a wall of water forced its way into the building, and as Johnson put it, life changed. There was no time to gather thoughts, review, and systematically follow emergency procedures, Johnson recalled for the council. We began evacuating 54 healthcare residents, half of them from our secured memory unit, most in bed, carrying them to safety, some over our shoulders. Nikki Lewis, the CFO of Fraser, spoke next, her voice trembling. Reliving what Tim Johnson just spoke about, we were there, and it does need to be a priority to save our neighborhoods and save our residents. A minority of commenters, several from the earlier protest, spoke out against the annexation. This is not a debate about flood mitigation, which I think we can all agree is a good idea, David Martis, a longtime Boulder resident, told the council. This is about good governance and how far the city should go to get flood mitigation from CU. And in my opinion, we're not there yet. Raymond Bridge, speaking on behalf of Boulder County Audubon Society, 
expressed ecological concerns about the CU South property. Development of an additional campus at CU South would have enormous impacts on Boulder. No site has been no site plan has been provided, violating the normal process the city requires for annexation, making it impossible to judge the likely impacts. One after another residents spoke, making their cases either for or against the approval of the annexation agreement by emergency. Finally, around 11.30 p.m., after hearing from almost a 100 citizens, the tired-looking council members concluded, agreeing to continue the meeting a week later, on September 21st, the same day they would deliberate and finally vote on whether to annex CU South or wait until the matter goes to a people's vote in November. A few days after the September 14th public hearing, Mayor Weaver and Council Member Rachel Friend met Boulder Weekly at the CU South property for a walking tour of the controversial 308-acre lot. I want to get one thing out of the way right up front, Mayor Weaver said seriously, a toothpick sticking out of the corner of his mouth. People who are against this are saying that if we pass an annexation by emergency, it means that the referendum cannot happen. That is false. We're not trying to interfere with democracy, Friend added. Mayor Weaver explained that even if the City Council approves the annexation agreement by emergency, the people of Boulder will still have the opportunity to follow with a referendum, which would allow Boulder voters to overturn the Council's ordinance. Weaver took out his phone and pulled up the City of Boulder Emergency Provision Charter, Section 38A, which allows Boulder voters to overturn an emergency ordinance. Weaver and Friend hope that doesn't happen, because they both opined this agreement is about as good an option as Boulder is going to get. My preference would be to mitigate for a thousand-year flood, Friend said, but within reality, we're looking at 500 to 100-year flood protection. This has been looked at for 20 years, and it's just been the steady winnowing of options. Friend and Weaver then physically pointed out and explained all the reasons why the 500-year flood plan was simply unattainable. In order to build a sufficiently large flood wall to contain the water, the city would need to tie into CDOT's bridge under U.S. Highway 36, which CDOT absolutely will not allow. According to Colorado Water Law, all water detained by a municipality in the event of a flood has to be released in 72 hours, which wouldn't be possible given the amount of water that would have to be conveyed under Highway 36 in just 72 hours. FEMA wouldn't approve the 100-year flood mitigation plan because it would have violated safety codes. The 500-year flood wall would take up 8 to 10 additional acres of space on the property and would extend into the state natural area, home to several protected species of animals and plants. Their list of reasons went on. Clearly, the city's engineers had considered the different possibilities, from a 300-year flood protection plan to different layouts and configurations of the flood wall to different options for groundwater conveyance and drainage. The current plan on the table, both politicians repeated, is the best one that the city and CU could come up with, 
and it's the best deal that's been in the city's hands for over 20 years of negotiations. People say if you just slow down, and if we just had the property and CU wasn't part of this, we could do better. We could do 500, friend says, and we can't. For 20 years we've looked, and we've tried everything, and this is what we can do. When we talk about 500, and there's zero chance of doing it, then our choices are, do we want 100 or do we want zero? That seems to be the point a lot of residents of South Boulder have arrived at. During the public comment period on September 14th, that was a recurring line of reason. This has been a discussion in Boulder for decades. The city has already experienced one devastating flood event, and the possible options have been diminishing over the years. The current agreement is a good one for the city, and the time to act is now, before the area floods again. I think this is a better deal than everybody hoped for, Friend said, as a tour of the CU South concluded. I think CU has been very generous negotiating partner. Under the current deal, CU is offering the city 155 acres of the 308-acre property, 119 acres of which will become permanently protected open space. And contrary to what many opponents of annexation argue, the city will actually get a say in how CU develops its 153-acre portion of the property. It's that's what this whole annexation agreement is about, Friend writes in an email. It set guardrails around what CU can and cannot do or build on the property. As a state entity, CU is not ordinarily subject to city building codes, but as part of this agreement, CU has agreed to many limits that would be legally enforceable. In a climate emergency, delay is not your friend, Mayor Weaver adds. If this had not been studied for 10 years, then there might be a case for more consideration. But we've done plenty of analysis and public engagement to support making a well-informed decision and moving ahead expeditiously. So now is, in fact, the most opportune time to make a clear decision. When the process is complete and with council members who have had two to ten years to get up to speed. Otherwise, the decision will end up in the hands of a new city council after the next election. That, friend says, could lead to goalposts getting moved. When the council gathered virtually on the night of September 21st to finish the meeting they started a week earlier and deliberate on the annexation agreement, there was another three hours of discussion before they finally made a motion to vote on Ordinance 8483, whether or not to annex CU South by emergency. The vote was six to one. Every council member voted in favor except Maribai Nagel. After almost 25 years of debate, discussion, analysis, review, negotiation, and at least one catastrophic flood event, the CU South property is subject to annexation by an emergency vote of the council. South Boulder is due to get its 100-year flood protection eventually after engineering design for phase one is complete in 2024, and CU will have the option to develop their portion of the property according to the constraints laid out in the agreement. Maybe. As the protesters at September 14th anti-annexation rally promised, this decision is already being followed up with a referendum. 
After decades of fighting against this, the Save South Boulder activists aren't going to give up easily. What happens when the flood comes that wasn't the design flood that the engineers planned for, and you've got a development the size of downtown there, Peter Mayer asked at the rally. What happens when the Sam Weaver detention pond and the Rachel Friend flood berm fail? Mayor Weaver scoffed when asked the same question in so many words. I would say, thank God we built the 100-year flood protection plan, Weaver says, because 55% of the water that would have gone downstream into people's basements would be trapped at CU South instead. I would buy residents a lot of time, Frank said, and what we're talking about here is preventing catastrophic outcomes. Adventurers need accessibility. Colorado legislation aims to close gaps and provide accessibility for all in the local outdoor industry by Carly Huckles. A House Bill 21-13-18 passed during this year's legislative session allows funding to create an outdoor equity grant program. Once the application period opens, the grants will be provided to outdoor organizations that create opportunities for underserved youth and their families to get through the barriers that block their access to open space, state parks, public lands, and more. Our outdoors are an amazing place to spend time and every Colorado deserves that opportunity, Governor Jared Polis said during the bill's signing. But the outdoor recreation industry is historically not inclusive. Accessibility is not adequate for people within lower income brackets and those who live with disabilities. Gear, park passes, transportation, and specialized equipment are all expensive and not easily accessible for everyone. This new legislation, bolstered by the work of nonprofit organizations, is an attempt to change that inequity. It's bringing new opportunities for many families unable to afford access to outdoor recreation, but there's a lot fewer options for people living with disabilities. For those living with blindness or vision loss, there is a huge gap in accessibility and inclusion. Many people lack transportation, and trained sight guides are hard to come by. A lot of the time, these things cost extra money on top of the park passes and any other costs and fees that arise. Melissa Fishburn is a Colorado native, but she's never been on a hike until August of this year. She was part of the Audio Information Network of Colorado Bringing Print to Life fundraiser. The AINC Audio Trekkers invited community members to join their team of 10 hikers who are blind or visually impaired and 10 sighted guides on a six-mile hike. The experience was provided at no cost to these Coloradans. Fishburn says volunteers came from across the country to have the opportunity to be a part of the event. It just really felt like a good challenge that I wanted to be a part of, Fishburne says. Several people signed up to be sighted guides. They were genuinely caring people, and no one made us feel like we were less than, whether you're an experienced hiker or if it was your first go-around like me. Colorado is home to more than 17,000 outdoor trails for hiking and biking. 
According to the organization Nature for All, the state currently has five trails that have braille accessibility for visitors who are blind or print impaired, all of which are less than a mile and a half. Among the five listed, two are not hikes, but features at businesses in Denver, the Mork Braille Trail at the Anchor Center for Blind Children and the Sensory Garden in the Denver Botanic Gardens. There aren't many resources for guides outside of those trails either, and the ones that do exist cost. Finding guides with proper training isn't easy either, but during the AINC fundraiser, they took time to help teach the volunteers. People were eager to learn on how to best be guides. Nobody made us feel like we weren't able-bodied or like we weren't important, Fishburne says. Everybody was so supportive. Penn Street is the Director of Development and Outreach of AINC and organized the fundraiser. She says she's not going to the typical fundraising route, and while this event was indeed to help fund AINC's mission of providing news and information in an audio format for the blind, low vision, and print disabled community of Colorado, it also provided a way for people to get outside. After being bit by a western diamondback rattlesnake in her childhood, Street was given anti-venom and medication but an adverse reaction caused Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Her bodily reactions included burns from the inside out, damaged soft tissue, muscle tone, and vision loss. When she recovered and left the hospital, Street says her parents went into overdrive to try and protect her from anything else that could put her in danger, like most parents whose child experiences a traumatic event. Street says that after years of rebelling against naysayers and still finding a way to do whatever she was trying to do, she wanted to help others do the same. You can hike, you can paddleboard, you can experience the outdoors. It is just getting the courage to get out and do it one time, Street says. I found ways that I could still do what everybody else does, but with a little bit of tweaking. Navigating outdoor recreation activities like hiking comes with a lot of challenges when you start, especially without accessibility resources. Street says that she has a guide dog that has been trained to help while hiking, but not everyone has that kind of resource. She also utilizes trekking poles because she says she can't tell if it's one inch or one mile drop at the edge of the trail. I feel the fear and do it anyway, says Street. I can push myself more than even I thought I could do. There are groups that do provide help for outdoor recreation activities like skiing and snowshoeing, but they don't provide transportation. The pandemic is also impacting what little access to resources people have. Trying to find sighted guides is not a simple Google search and a lot of events from Facebook groups are still being canceled, but Street is looking forward to the future. I have this dream for next summer, Street says, to do a fundraiser that includes a paddle boarding experience for people with disabilities. AINC's main mission is to provide access to free programming, news and information in an audio format 
for the blind, low vision, and print disabled community of Colorado. However, members of the organization are trying to find ways to create a space in Colorado outdoor recreation for people who are blind or print impaired. Street says that the audio trekkers hike is just the beginning. We have a right to be out there just like anybody else, Street says. Now an article by Caitlin Rocket. It doesn't have to sound the same, it just has to sound good. Delvin Lamar Organ Trio tells fans, I told you so, on the new album. Delvin Lamar's musical career started with a lie. I think it was in seventh grade, I ended up lying to the band teacher, Lamar, who fronts the Washington State-based Delvin Lamar Organ Trio, laughs through the phone from his home in Pullman, about four and a half hours east of Seattle. He had to take an elective, like a cooking class or guitar, and I didn't want to do any of those. So I was in the band room one day, and I saw this baritone horn on the floor, and I told the teacher, I know how to play that. He put me in band the next semester, and I had no idea what I was doing. But I just picked this horn up, looked at the guy next to me, and did whatever he was doing. I just played the thing. I couldn't read music, but I knew how to play. Like automatically, immediately, when I picked it up. And it's been that way for Lamar ever since. He moved on to tenor sax, then trumpet and drums, mostly self-taught. These days, the organ takes center stage in Lamar's life, leading his jazz trio, sometimes called DL03, in building grooves deep enough to recline in. The group's debut album, Close But No Cigar, reached number one on the U.S. Contemporary Jazz Albums Chart in 2018. Its sophomore album of originals, I Told You So, released in January, has followed suit. But the magic of DLO3 is in live performance, in guitarist Jimmy James' joyful grin as he sears the frets of a silver tone, in drummer Dan Weiss' beanie-clad head bobbing as he taps out effortless rhythms, in Lamar's amiable storytelling between songs. The band has historically spent more months on the road than at home, traveling the country by van, flying to Europe to spend months on the road there. Then there was COVID. I didn't think we'd actually survive it financially, Lamar says. Touring was the band's bread and butter, and they'd just hired Weiss to replace original drummer David McGraw. Weiss started on fe- in February of 2020. He had quit his day job and everything. And we played four shows and everything got shut down after that. But he hung in there and now we're getting ready to do it again. The band is packing to hit the road this very evening, Lamar says, starting at the Tree Fort Music Festival in Boise, Idaho, before working its way across the mountains to the front range for a string of shows between Fort Collins and Colorado Springs, including the September 26th stop that was at the Fox Theater. I've got to thank my wife and our manager, Ms. Amy Novo, for seeing us through this, Lamar says, of the past 18 months of uncertainty. She works her magic. If there's a problem, man, she's on it. We hang in there basically because of her. 
Short in stature and unwavering in her support of her husband's talents, Novo is often lovingly referred to as Shortcake Mafia. She watched Lamar languish in obscurity for years on the Seattle music scene, lugging his 400-pound B3 Hammond around to play other people's music. I was watching an amazing talent being marginalized, Nova has said in the past of her husband's years as a sideman. He would be getting paid like $75 a gig and be spending $60 in gas to cart around his instrument, sometimes even renting a U-Haul. It wasn't fair. Novo made a deal with her husband. You can pick the musicians you want to work with and I'll take care of the rest. And she has. Part manager, part den mother, Novo gives Lamar the freedom to do what he does best. It's been a relief, Lamar says. I'm so grateful to her. Of course, the band has had its share of hiccups. Original guitarist Colin Higgins parted ways with the group not long after the release of their debut record, and original drummer David McGraw decided he needed to leave the band in 2019 to spend more time with his two young children. The new album's title is a playful taunt to people who said DL03 would lose its trademark groove without McGraw's hypnotic pocket drumming. Dave had such a distinctive style of drumming that it is kind of a lost art, Lamar says. I kept telling people, it doesn't have to be the same, it just has to be good. I don't want it to sound the same, I just want it to sound good. That's why I call this album Told You So, because that's what I've been saying the whole time. While McGraw can be heard on the album, Check YouTube for DLO3's February 2021 performance on KEXP to see Vice at work on the Scorching Jam Aces, which McGraw actually wrote. I miss David McGraw on drums too, but this guy is also a pocket machine, one commentator writes, and the sound of that snare is snappy AF, and those Istanbul Mehmet cymbals are the perfect match. One commentator sums up the profound joy that is watching Jimmy James play guitar. Jimmy James got the best stank face in the game, ripping them solos. It's easy to call DLO3's output feel-good music, but it misses the fundamental spirituality of the work. Lamar grew up listening to jazz greats like John Coltrane, whose 1965 album A Supreme Love made a huge impact on the young Lamar. My interpretation of that whole album is John Coltrane communicating with God, to a higher being, transcending, he explains. I grew up in Pentecostal church, and I was familiar with people speaking in tongues. The album really reminded me of that. Lamar taps into that trance-like state in his own work, finding his own commune with God although he struggles to put it into words when he talks about it. But that's spirituality, something you feel, not something you explain, something you trust, not something you try to sell to others. And while the pandemic was hard on DLO3, Lamar says the time off has given him time to learn new instruments, lay down albums worth of new material, and explore lyricism and vocals. 
He's even got a side project in the works, DLO3 and Friends, that brings in musicians the band has met in its travels. It's going slow, Lamar says, but so far it's sounding killing. A world at odds with itself. Movies cry for help at the Toronto International Film Festival by Michael J. Casey. Vestermarkt 20 in Amsterdam is home to the Anne Frank house, the secret annex where the Frank and Van Pels families hid from the Nazis for more than two years before being captured and sent to the camps. Today, Anne Frank is an inspiration to millions. The diary she wrote while in hiding has been translated into 70 languages and sold 35 million copies. And the annex is now a museum, one where visitors line up by the thousands to glimpse the living quarters and read from the diary penned by the world's most famous refugee. And as they line the cobblestone streets waiting to get in, they turn a blind eye to the tents, cardboard boxes, and makeshift homes housing myriad refugees fleeing war-torn countries. At least that's how director Ari Fullman sees it in Where is Anne Frank? A new animated drama. The citizens populating Where is Anne Frank are not hostile towards the refugees, but neither are they welcoming. They're excellent at ignoring them altogether while praising the resilience of Anne Frank. Everything in the city is named after her. Streets, bridges, canals, schools, libraries, theaters, you name it. It's a hypocrisy kitty, voiced by Ruby Stokes. Can't stand. She's the physical manifestation of Frank's diary, and thanks to the magic of Anne Frank's animation team, a witness to suffering so common it often goes overlooked. Where is Anne Frank is a movie full of hope, even if its primary concern is pointing out a broken world. And it was in good company at this year's Toronto International Film Festival, which wrapped September 18th. It seems that the problems of the world are becoming insurmountable, even for imaginative filmmakers. Take Costa, Costa Brava, Lebanon, from filmmaker Moina Alk. Set in the future, Beirut is plagued by social unrest and toxic pollution. Trash piles up in the streets and protests are constant. To appease the citizens, the Lebanese government promises to relocate the trash to a green landfill in the hills outside of Beirut, right next door to the Badri family. Then come the tractors and trucks, the digging, the blasting, and the trash. Mountains upon mountains of plastic bags, none of it the least bit green. The Badris left the problems of Beirut long ago for the last green spot in Lebanon. Now the problems of Beirut have found them. Everyone fights their wars in their way. Both Werazan Frank and Costa Brava, Lebanon, hope that visibility can overcome apathy, even denial. It's not quite the same in Silent Night from writer-director Camille Griffin. Environmental destruction is again at the center. Only this time around, no amount of visibility or awareness will save anybody.
Thankfully, Silent Night is a foul-mouthed black comedy. It would be an unbearable watch if it weren't. Not everything here works, but there's something enjoyable about watching Kira Knightley and Matthew Good slap on a smile and host their last Christmas. Written pre-pandemic and filmed just as England was locking down, Silent Night's central conflict plays vastly different in today's world than it did in the one Griffin had conceived it. It's like a distress signal from the past. So is Where is Anne Frank in Costa Brava, Lebanon. Who knows what shape the world will be in when they make their way to local theaters, but I doubt they'll lose an ounce of their urgency. Once Upon a Snarf A toast to one man's obsession with warm buns, grilled meats, and selling food he wants to eat by John Lendorf. Snarf's was a different kind of boulder sandwich place from the moment it opened in 1995. The odd restaurant shack on the quiet East Pearl Street was painted with colorful, whimsical characters, a visual standout. Boulder already had too many sub shops, but Snarf's attracted attention immediately because it served real grinders, the big East Coast subs crafted on toasted bread with warm fillings layered with baked eggplant, marinara sauce, and three melted cheeses, Snarf's Righteous Eggplant Parmesan Sandwich was my instant favorite. Jimmy Seidel was exactly zero, had exactly zero restaurant experience when he opened Snarf's. My family was just obsessed with food and dining. The favorite sandwich my mom made when I was growing up in St. Louis was brisket on toasted Wonder Bread with mayo and sweet relish, Seidel says, as he sits at the table at Snarf's in the Table Mesa Shopping Center. Seidel was working in financial services in Chicago when he came to a career conclusion. I hated what I was doing, making market derivatives. I quit in 1994, he says. After moving to Boulder, Saito managed a Subway franchise until he found the Pearl Street location that had housed numerous takeout eateries, including an A&W. The site is now a condo development. Working open to close for the first three years of Snarf's, Snyder met his wife at the bank. Sometimes I didn't have time to make a cash deposit, so she'd come and pick it up. So we got to know each other, he says. Many of Seidel's sandwich favorites are still on the menu today at Snarf's 22 shops in Colorado, Austin, and in St. Louis, owned by his sister, with six more locations coming. Snarf's distinctive, artsy look started with Seidel's preference for existing structures. I wanted locations to look different, not cookie-cutter, he says. Artist Jen Healy continues to construct locally-themed mosaics in shops using the same quirky characters and pastel colors who populate the menu. Saito's sandwich philosophy consists of devising the perfect layering of textures, flavors, condiments, and seasonings. The most popular item, the Italian, is filled with sliced salami, pepperoni, capicola, and mortadella plus provolone cheese, mayo, mustard, hot peppers, onions, lettuce, tomato, pickles, 
herb seasoning and oil, always on a toasted bun. The signature hot pickled peppers were inspired by a classic condiment served on Italian beef sandwiches in Chicago that Seidel loved. Snark's popular version is sold by the jar. Boulder's larger-than-life sandwich guru is an unapologetic exponent of comfort foods people secretly love, whether it's egg salad with American cheese or fried bologna. Well, I'm a white bread guy, but we came up with whole wheat and gluten-free buns that customers like, he says. A lot of people have come into the shop to tell me what I should be doing. He listens when it comes to snarfs not on the menu, menu, sandwich variations devised by customers and employees. Not on the menu choices range from the mother clucker with rotisserie chicken, bacon, and provolone to the mixed snarf, roast beef, American cheese, Thousand Island, onion, lettuce, and pickle, but no sesame seed buns. Saito's all-time favorite is the German dog, a beef hot dog with bacon, melted Swiss, mustard, horseradish, sauerkraut, and pickles. It's made for Oktoberfest. Snurfs recently teamed with Colorado band leader Nathaniel Ratliff to fund sandwiches for those experiencing homelessness through sales of the Rat- Ratliff, a special sub stuffed with turkey, Swiss, and extra bacon and peppers. It's not surprising that Snarf Burger the hamburger stand Seidel launched in 2013 was not the result of a corporate spreadsheet decision. I couldn't find the kind of juicy burger I like, cooked on the griddle, not a grill. I believe in the griddle, he says emphatically. The original Snarf Burger is located at a historical former barbecue shack near Boulder High in CU, with two others open in Denver. A quarter century after opening, Snarf still smells like fresh toast. With many menu choices available, I left with an eggplant parmesan sub. About the sandwich chain's name. Snarf was a nickname I got from my college girlfriend because I like to eat a lot. It seemed like a good name for a sub shop. Delivering on the promises of cannabis. As science's understanding of cannabis evolves, Commercial Products Are Now Targeting Specific Health and Wellness Goals by Will Brunza. Cannabis has always made big promises as a medicinal supplement. Pain relief, reduced anxiety, increased appetites, better moods, sharper focus, and surer sleep. But for a long time, knowing what specific strains could offer which of those benefits was the only way to shop by effect. For a clear, focused high, you'd ask your dealer or bud tender for something like sour diesel or blackjack. If you needed a strain that would make you ravenously hungry, you'd seek out something like lemon kush or head cheese. And for issues falling asleep, you maybe ask around to find hoodoo kush or some equivalent. It wasn't an exact science, but there was a science behind it different terpenes and cannabinoid varieties specific to those strains were working together in concert, enhancing one another's unique properties. The Ballyhooed entourage effect at work. Now in the era of commercial cannabis, 
Companies are cracking the code behind that chemical phenomenon and fine-tuning it to create products with a distinct properties. Cannabis products specifically for working out or for stimulating the appetite, focusing creatively, or falling fast asleep. It's the whole idea behind Wana's new Optimals line, according to Mike Hennessy, the Vice President of Solutions at Wana. Not everybody understands what strains and what formulations are going to be right for them, Hennessy says. So, Wana Optimals was designed to achieve different health and wellness goals for customers by formulating them in a specific way. The Fast Asleep Gummy is the first product launched in this new line of cannabis creations and one among many in an industry-wide push to make and market products that are optimized for a specific purpose, like sleep. Steve's Goods offers CBG Isolate PM gummies and CBN AM gummies. Stratos offers a line of emulsion tinctures sold as Energy, 1 to 1 CBD Sativa 8THC, Relax, 1 to 1 CBD Sativa and Indica THC, and Sleep, 1 to 1 CBD Indica THC. And Veritas Fine Cannabis has even started detailing each of their flower strains, terpene profiles, and specific effects on their labels. What's different about Juana's new Fast Asleep Gummies, though, is their cocktail content of different terpenes, cannabinoids, and hormones. According to Hennessy, they used both scientific data and consumer feedback to chemically craft the ideal cannabis sleep aid gummy. The newest research shows that higher doses of CBD can be sedating and relaxing, while lower doses of CBD can end up being alerting and awakening. So they wanted to make sure to use a higher dose of CBD. Interestingly, THC is sedating, however, if you take too much. It can actually damage REM sleep. The key then, he says, was to use a high dose of CBD and a low dose of THC. But they didn't stop there. They took the entourage effect one, perhaps even two steps further, adding CBN and CBG, two lesser-known cannabinoids, to the mixture to help alleviate the two most common sources of insomnia and sleeplessness. CBN has been shown to be pain-relieving, and CBN has shown to be stress-relieving, Hennessy says, citing a John Hopkins study that identified those as most widespread causes of sleeplessness. And again, when taken with CBD, they work in this entourage effect, where they're more potent together than individually. The fast-asleep gummies also contain over 30 different specialized terpenes in the formula. And the final ingredient they added was melatonin, a hormone that naturally helps regulate a person's sleep and is most widely used over-counter sleep aid in the country. But melatonin is not without its own critics. There's some criticism because melatonin can lead to grogginess and some other side effects the next morning, he says. 
The reason is most over-the-counter melatonin products include 5 to 10, even 20 milligrams of the hormone. Our research has shown that to be too high of a dose to be used effectively, especially alongside cannabis. The end result of all this is a gummy that contains 10 milligrams CBD for calming and relaxing effects, 2 milligrams CBN, which can lower stress, relieve tension, and alleviate physical discomfort, 2 milligrams CBG for its relaxing and anti-inflammatory effects, 2 milligrams THC, which works with the CBD to help regulate the body's circadian rhythm, and just 1 milligram of melatonin to top it all off. Paired with cannabinoids, I really think it just helps the product to, to be that much more functional, Hennessy says. The Wana Optimal Fast Asleep Gummies are just one cannabis product in a new wave that will likely change how customers view and use cannabis. No longer is cannabis going to be relegated as some unwieldy medicinal flower or an inconsistent edible going forward people will be able to use cannabis as a functional dietary and medicinal supplement that can be used to achieve a variety of very specific goals. What we're trying to do with the Optimal line is simplify things for the customer, Hennessy says. We've heard that cannabis helps with anxiety, that it helps us sleep, and it has so many good benefits for different individuals. We're trying to deliver on the promises of cannabis. Taste of the Week by John Lundorf. Pumpkin cure curry at B's Thai Kitchen. Whenever I crave Thai food, I end up in a food fight with myself. My brain demands curry, my head needs noodles, and my stomach craves fried rice. It's especially hard to choose at B's Thai Kitchen, a great Lafayette-based food truck. B. Rungtawa Kishich grew up in northern Thailand and cooked at the Thai eatery before recently launching the truck with her family. Bee's Thai curry lineup includes Penang, green, red, sweet pineapple, and pumpkin. Noodle dishes feature three favorites, Pad Thai, Drunken Noodles, and Pad Siu. And then there's Thai fried rice packed with lump crab meat or pineapple. That doesn't include Bee's stir fries. Thai omelet, satay, chicken wings, samosas, and sweet sticky rice. This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Kate McCann. Please stay tuned for the next program. The Audio Information Network of Colorado. This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Welcome to today's podcast, where we'll be talking about fungus, more specifically fungal diseases. I'm Charlotte Dugan. You may think of the mushrooms on your pizza when you hear the word fungus, but some fungi can cause serious infections. These infections can have symptoms like fever, cough, or shortness of breath which are similar to other respiratory infections, including COVID-19. Today, we'll be speaking with CDC expert Tom Chiller, branch chief of the Mycotic Diseases Branch 
in the Division of Foodborne, Waterborne, and Environmental Diseases. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Charlotte. Great to be here. Tom, why should we be worried about fungal diseases? Well, you know, fungal diseases are commonly a cause of things like toenail fungus and ringworm, which are common fungal diseases of the skin, but they don't cause serious infections. They're usually mild. There are other fungal infections, however, that can cause severe illness and even death. And these are the fungi that we're worried about here at the CDC. Certain fungi can even cause infections in the lung, like other respiratory illnesses caused by both bacteria and viruses. These fungi specifically live in the environment and sometimes in different regions of the United States, and people can get these infections from breathing in the spores of these fungi in the air. So who can get fungal infections and how do they make us sick? Well, anyone can get a fungal disease, um, even people who are otherwise healthy. However, people with weakened immune systems are more likely to get serious fungal diseases in their lungs, blood, or even brain. People most commonly affected by serious fungal diseases include those with cancer, HIV AIDS, or even stem cell transplants. Um, people who have been hospitalized, including those on ventilators and in intensive care units, and people taking medications that suppress the immune system, such as steroids and cancer chemotherapy. Most fungal diseases are caused by breathing in or touching common fungi in the environment. People breathe in and touch fungal spores every day. This is something that we do and generally don't get sick. But if you have a weakened immune system, then certain kinds of fungi can cause serious disease. Some fungal diseases, the symptoms can include fever, cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, headache, chest pain, and body aches. And these are very similar to other respiratory illnesses, even like coronavirus, COVID-19. And this makes diagnosing these fungal infections often very difficult. Why is it important to consider fungal diseases during the COVID-19 pandemic? People on ventilators in the ICU that are sick with COVID-19 might be at risk for getting certain fungal infections. Diagnosing these fungal infections, however, can be quite difficult, and the symptoms of some of these diseases are very similar to those of COVID-19. So we need to employ additional laboratory testing in order to tell if a person has a fungal infection or just COVID-19. Knowing the cause of infections is critically important for several reasons. People with fungal diseases need different care and treatment than those with COVID-19 alone. And COVID-19, as we know, spreads person to person, but most fungal diseases don't. Therefore, the precautions to prevent the spread of these two different infections are quite different. How are fungal diseases treated? Well, most people with a fungal disease need to be treated with a specific antifungal medicine. Antibiotics and antivirals are used to treat bacterial or viral infections, but they don't work against fungal infections. It's important for patients and clinicians to be aware of the symptoms specific to fungal infections because early diagnosis and treatment can lead to better health outcomes and save lives. Thanks so much, Tom. CDC hosts an annual Fungal Disease Awareness Week every September. Visit cdc.gov slash fungal for more information about fungal diseases and how they can make you sick.
For more information about COVID-19, visit cdc.gov slash COVID-19. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.